Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers@yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about bringing clinical research into the community with Dr. Andrea Silber and Jose de Jesus. Dr. Silber is a clinician and associate clinical professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Jose is a community health educator at Yale. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So maybe we can start out by both of you introducing yourselves and telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. So Andrea, maybe we'll start with you. Well, I'm a breast medical oncologist, and I've actually been in New Haven since 1981. I've seen amazing things happen in terms of the cancer center, but unfortunately, I still see that cancers uh, tend to do worse in a lot of our inner city patients. They may come in with advanced stages. They may do uh, not as well with the same kinds of treatments. And despite all the wonderful things that have happened, uh, this is a fact that hasn't changed. And that's what I, that's one of the things that I really want to work with, yeah. work on. So, Jose, how about you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay. Um, well, I'm brand new to the Yale University family. I've been here since December working with Dr. Silber and Dr. Jones on a couple of different projects. And, again, that's what our focus uh, here today is to try to bring um, that knowledge to the community and to get a greater participation of um, racially diverse populations in the clinical trials. So, Andrea, why don't we start with, you know, why is it that people in the inner cities, people of um, racially diverse ethnicities, lower socioeconomic status, why is it that people do worse? Like, what is it? Well, that's a very, very complex question. But there's some things that we know. First of all, there are an increase in chronic conditions such as diabetes or obesity that may make certain kinds of cancer treatments more problematic. Um, access to care, even though there's access around New Haven in terms of transportation, a lot of uh, inner city patients live around the cancer center, but they may not have access, and they certainly may not have access to clinical trials. No one tells them about clinical trials. Um, No one may tell them about uh, changes in cancer screening or things that may help allow people to do better or present at an earlier age, uh, earlier stage. And then some, some of the things are just intangible. Why do people do worse? Those are important clinical questions. And fortunately, we have very good scientists at Yale who are looking to try to find some of the answers. So, so some of it may be yeah, biologic, uh, right? Um, but, but some of it, in terms of access, I mean, when we look at the studies 
on why certain populations do worse, one of the things that had always come up as a predictor was insurance status. Now, has that changed with the Affordable Care Act? I mean, people should be getting insurance. Do we still find that that's an issue? Unfortunately, it still is an issue. People, when they have, um, say, you know, are on Access Connecticut, they still worry. They worry about being billed. Um, even though clinical trials are covered by the Affordable Care Act, and that is one of the wonderful things about the Affordable Care Act, but people are still worried about walking into walk-in clinics and who's going to pay for that, and many people don't have primary continuity of care, so they don't get some of the screening tests and they come in an emergency setting. So let's talk about that, because I think one of the things that is very common um, and that we talk about a lot on this show is the fact that if we can find cancer early, oftentimes we can catch it when the treatments are much more effective and people do much better. So are there screenings available in the inner cities? Is I mean, do people are people aware of screenings and the fact that they can get them oftentimes for free as part of preventative care that's covered uh, by the Affordable Care Act? Well, it's great that you just um, mentioned that because um, also uh, Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, we've just launched a new program um, um, dealing with screening and prevention. So um, that's we find that the information in these neighborhoods, I think, um, being born and raised in New Haven and in the Hill section of New Haven, the mentality is I'm not going to go to the hospital or to the doctor until I have a symptom, until there's something wrong. And that mindset is, I believe, one of the greatest barriers that we need to change. Because for my family, my generation, if you're healthy, you don't go to the doctor, you know, you and um, the people that go to the doctor are sick. And the whole premise about screening and getting folks early is to screen atypical, no symptoms. And that message is extremely difficult to reach to a lot of folks in my community. So how do we get that message out? I mean, how do I, I, I totally get it, right? Like, why would you go to the doctor if you're not sick? And why would you have a test if you're not sick? So how do how do we get that message? out. Well, there's several different uh, uh, ways that we're t- trying to address that here at um, at Yale. So um, my position and a lot of outreach and community involvement, um, trying to meet with uh, the stakeholders in the community, um, civic organizations, schools, churches, people that really um, have something to say in the community, getting that information out to those folks and then disseminating that to the public at large. That's our biggest goal um, that we're trying to do right now. And so, Andrea, is it just a matter of education or is it a matter of service provision or uh or 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 how do we improve screening i think there uh, needs to be a change in culture that's the culture in the community and it's the culture at our institution um, making it possible for people to uh, get screenings and and get screenings in the right met right manner. For example, with breast screening, someone comes once and doesn't follow up on abnormals, well, that's not screening. So, uh, you know, that's one of the interests of the National Cancer Institute. Why do people from low-income backgrounds who may get a screening test not follow through with abnormals? And as we all know, 
it's not going to help if it's not periodic screening and with appropriate and timely follow-up. So I think um, there are going to be programs and shifts in the university and, and in the cancer center, and I've already seen them, that are going to make a difference. Like, you know, for example, people who work in um, poorly paid jobs, they can't take phone calls during the day. They can't leave during the day. There are uh, adaptations that we're going to need to make if we are going to make a difference. And I know just even raising awareness of how certain low-income groups live, how different cultures function. Um, yes, maybe they will bring their kids to the office with them, and I know that's probably not something I'm supposed to talk about, but we have to, in certain cultures, it's helpful if you can get the entire family involved, an entire family buy-in. So those are ideas that we're trying to make a reality. So is it that people don't follow up on abnormals because the the scheduling is such that they are being called in the middle of the day instead of on a Saturday, for example, when they can have a follow-up mammogram? Or is it that they don't follow up because of fear and the idea that, well, geez, I, I don't want to get a diagnosis that I don't want to get? And, you know, you bring up a great point. No one wants to hear, um, once you've had a test, that it's abnormal and you need to come back. But I think also we have other people from the community who have really volunteered to serve as ambassadors and say, you've got to move forward. And if you have a cancer diagnosed, you need to get it treated. Um, I'm so grateful to some of uh, my patients who all have breast cancer and have just been instrumental in saying you've got to move forward. You can't let fear keep you down and keep you from getting the appropriate treatment. So yes, it's going to take a while, but I do think we're making a difference. And so, you know, at the top of the show, we talked a little bit about clinical trials, and it sounds like that's something that's really important. But Jose, maybe you can tell our, our listeners why clinical trials are important. I mean, uh, for a lot of people, they think about clinical trials as being human experimentation, like they're, they don't want to be a guinea pig. Um, and here you are saying to people, um, not only should you go to the doctor, not only should you get a screening test and then follow up when it's abnormal, but oh, by the way, you should really think about clinical trials. Now, for a lot of people, that's going to sound really scary. Yes, and you're right. It, it, a lot of people are scared of that. And most people have the misinformation uh, that clinical trials are for last stage um, treatment of cancer or the last resort when in fact that is false. Um, there is huge gains right now um, happening in clinical trials at every stage of the cancer uh, uh, progression. So um, that's the challenge because for many, many years you thought cl clinical trials, uh-oh, doomsday, but that is not the case anymore. I mean, at every stage, at you know, many, many different types of uh, incredible clinical trials are happening right now all across the country. So to bring that information to the patient and not only to the patient, to the area physicians, that's what we're trying to do um, with this program. And so, you know, Andrea, particularly in minority populations, there's a lot of fear around, you know, clinical trials um, because there's been a lot of history uh, that has not been so pleasant uh, around minorities in clinical trials. And I think that that causes a lot of trepidation. Um, so how do you allay some of that fear? 
Well, um, I think, and I, I'd like to also just highlight what Jose said, clinical trials are great clinical care. And I think it involves a certain sort of education of saying you are going to get to see your doctor. You are going to be able to get the scans that so many people want. Um, often you see in minority populations the fear that, no, they're not going to get as much testing or as much care as other people. Well, when you're on a clinical trial, that's mandated. So that's uh, kind of the first step. But the other uh, strategy that we use is just our patients who have been on clinical trials and who have really done well, or just a sense of altruism that I see in minority communities, which is unbelievable, and it's something we all can leverage for the better of our whole city, that people say, well, even if I can't be helped, if I can help someone who's like me, or if I can find out information that's going to help my daughter or my niece, I'm going to go forward. And that's something um, that's very beautiful, and it's very prevalent. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really important, just to echo uh, a few things that both you and Jose have mentioned, is that clinical trials are great clinical care. Like, it is always comparing standard of care to what we think is better. And sometimes the clinical trial, excuse me, is sometimes the clinical trial level of care is greater than you would if you were just getting your regular care, you know, through your regular doctor. So it's that level of care, that's what the people, we need to spread into the communities. We need to let, let folks know that the level of clear clinical trial is often more than what you would normally get. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about clinical trials right after we take a brief break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about clinical trials in the community with my guests, Dr. Andrea Silber and Jose De Jesus. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the United States and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment is an exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, cancer survivors can face several long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers to help keep cancer survivors focused on healthy living. The Survivorship Clinic at Yale Cancer Center focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Tragpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Andrea Silber and Jose De Jesus. We're talking about community access and awareness of clinical trials. And right before the break, we were talking about how clinical trials really are oftentimes not only a better standard of care, not only a better level of care, but really afford patients better outcomes. Because so often, the medications, the therapies uh, that you can get on clinical trial, you can't get off clinical trial. And oftentimes, these are medications um, and therapies that we think are going to be the next generation. We think are going to be better than what we have currently. But so often, there is fear, particularly in underserved communities, 
with regards to clinical trials. So Andrea, isn't it the onus of the doctor seeing the patient to talk about clinical trials? I mean, how do you really engage communities in, in having awareness and involvement in clinical trials? Well, one of our strategies, and we call it a program called Own It, which stands for Oncologists Welcome New Haven into Trials, is to try to reach certain segments of the community. One is the doctors who take care of patients in the community, people who work at the clinics, um, and other health providers at the clinics, such as as Fairhaven or Hill Health. Um, We've partnered with Project Access to increase awareness for the people that patients, community patients, trust, because that's often the first place you hear about clinical trials. So Jose and I were both at Fairhaven just talking about what what clinical trials can do. I'd also like to mention, though, that when you say doctors tell people about clinical trials, that's something that I think on a policy level we can do better. Um, It takes a long time to talk to someone, particularly someone who speaks English as a second language, um, about a clinical trial to make sure everyone understands and is on board. And the way our medical uh, day is set up, it really doesn't allow for that. It's not incentivized. And, And that's something that I think can change. I always say, you know, coding allows you to code for someone who has a little problem in the left ear, uh, upper portion. But if someone needs to have a translator and you need to talk to the family, why is there no code for that? It would make um, often our bosses happier as a way to justify how we spend our time. And it's really important that you need physician commitment to do this correctly and ethically. And what about reaching patients and trying to demystify what a clinical trial is? I mean, are there efforts to kind of get out into the community and talk to people? Oh, yes. Um, We've been... um We've only been up and running about 90 days now since I've been here at uh, Yale University. So it's been challenging, but it's very rewarding to finally start connecting uh, to the community, to to the stakeholders and the shareholders here in the community and bringing that message out to their constituents. Um, A lot of times um, you might get the information um, to get to that upper rung of an organization or an agency, but it does not get disseminated. What is really exciting that we're seeing now is that um, that message is getting to the on ground of the person out in the street. And that's what we're trying to do with this uh, program. Not only have um, one place where uh, patients can find out the information, but also physicians and providers, one-stop shopping that you can go to one place and find out what's happening. So then we can disseminate that information to the general public. So, but how does that work exactly? Because if you're in the general public and you're particularly in an underserved area that doesn't particularly go to the doctor, you don't particularly have cancer because you haven't particularly gotten screened or you haven't followed up on an abnormal test. So isn't clinical trials a little bit irrelevant for them? Like, how does that work for them? Well, you bring up a very good point. We would love to find people at an earlier point in their illness, but it's really about um, sort of getting ourselves into different parts of the community. I've gone to church groups, to 
high schools and middle schools and also have community partners, uh, it's often um, centered around someone that they know who has had cancer. Mm -hmm. And then they say, would you be interested in coming and talking, say, at our um, women's church group? And going out there, and then afterwards, people have interest. They say, well, you know, I have a friend who has breast cancer. I have a friend who has an abnormal mammogram. What should she do? Now, you might say, how many people are we reaching? Or that's really not about clinical trials. But it's about building a foundation that so that when someone is diagnosed, there's a level of trust and a level of interest. And in my own practice, I've been able to um, find uh, people of diverse backgrounds who want to participate in studies. But you can't just start out and say, we're going to double our accrual. That's not really what it's about. It's about partnering to make health and particularly um, cancer outcomes better for our neighbors. Yeah. And it sounds, Jose, like although Own It uh, is about uh, trials, it really will start a conversation that's much more than just about trials. It's 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 all about education. I think the only way that we can begin to address a lot of these serious um, issues that we're facing in uh, health disparities is education at all levels, bringing that education um, to the common man in the street, to the family, to the kids in the school, to change, to have a paradigm shift, to have screening and um, um, information on clinical trials and your health to be something normal that you talk about every day. A lot of folks do not have that regimen for whatever reason, for whatever cultural um, um, situations that they're living in or what have you. Th that That is not something in the forefront that um, that staying healthy in those healthy conversations is something that we're not having and this is what we're trying to do to bring those conversations into all aspects in the community because it'll affect a whole bunch of things, not just uh, clinical trials, but diabetes and, you know, obesity and what have you. Right. He, Jose makes an excellent point. I have a patient who was recently on a clinical trial, and when she finished her clinical trial, she said, you know, I am healthier now than when I first came in to see you because she's had numerous interventions. It's not only about treating the cancer. It is about making sure that her diet is healthy, that she exercises, that she uh, gets her other appropriate cancer screening, that she doesn't smoke cigarettes. All these things, that's a change, and it's a positive change. And it's a change, I think, that one of the things that's so gratifying for me, it's a change that people feel good about. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really what our goal is, to make everyone feel good about what they're doing. And, and that goes um, for some of the physicians as well. I know when I trained a while ago, there was this idea certain people are, quote, appropriate for a clinical trial. In other words, meaning that they're educated, that they're health-seeking, that they are um, people who come in empowered. Well, that's really changed now because those people almost don't really need our help. They'll find it. The people that need our help are the people who, in many ways, don't know how to ask or how to access. And that's really what Jose and I are doing. 
yeah. trying. I think that the education piece is so critical so that even though you might not have a cancer diagnosis now, if and when, God forbid, you ever do, or if and when your cousin, your sister, your friend, your neighbor does, that you're an advocate for getting your health screenings, getting appropriate treatment, following up on that mammogram, getting into clinical trials. But Jose, I want to ask you, you know, it seems to me that in that education process, which as you mentioned, is really not just about cancer clinical trials, and in fact, it might not even be just about cancer, it's about healthy lifestyles. I was just going to say that. It's about lifestyle education, exactly. It's about trying to have folks see that what they're doing maybe is not the best for their own health and giving them alternatives. And that's easier said than done because there's so many different levels of how people learn and how people retain information. So that's the challenge that we face. It's not just, um, hey, here's a pamphlet, read it and you're good. You're gonna, there's gonna be some times where there's gonna be demonstrations where you're gonna have to lead people by the hands and you're gonna have to show them. Um, sometimes it'll be audio and different presentations and face-to-face -face meeting in the churches where they feel comfortable and safe um, and going out there and giving that talk to the men's group, to the women's group, or what have you. So those are the things. It's not a, a one prescription is going to cure this all. It's going to be very different interventions and at different levels of those interventions. Yeah. And it seems to me, though, that it's even beyond just education because you can educate somebody on what to eat, but if they live in a food desert... Um, that's not changing anything. You can tell people to exercise, but if there isn't a safe neighborhood or a park or a playground or a sidewalk, that's gonna be a little bit harder. So Andrea, how do you take this conversation to policy and advocacy? And um, that's exactly where we would ultimately like to go. New Haven is a great community because there are a lot of very interested and committed um, people. We have a great university where there are many disciplines that are interested in problems of poverty and poor health. But um, it can't only be about New Haven. It's got to be about our state, our country, and ultimately the world. And we start small, but we hope that our programs can serve as a model and New Haven is a microcosm of what you see in so many places. I, I see families where the families have been decimated by early mortality. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really shocking when you interview a patient and find out that her siblings, only 50% of them made it past the age of 50 in the United States in a wealthy country. It's, it's shocking and upsetting but to know that we can do better. And that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps us all going. So uh, in your educational efforts, and uh, has there been a move to knock on the doors of the policymakers and say, hey, you know what? Poverty is an issue. And it's an issue not just about the workplace and about getting jobs and about the economy, it's, a, it's, it's actually a health issue. Um, that business development and getting, you know, grocery stores that actually have fresh fruits and vegetables um, isn't just a business issue, it, it's a health issue. Has that happened in our communities? I've actually met with some community leaders, including um, uh, met with some people from the Community Action Agency and trying to partner with other 
organizations that are really motivated uh, by the same things that we're motivated by. And I think it's been a nice, although somewhat preliminary, kind of discussion because uh, for these leaders, it's like the first time that, oh my gosh, people from the Cancer Center are interested in this, but this isn't really cancer, but poverty and health and economic development affects us all. And that's the other thing. Cancer care, It's there are other reasons besides just, oh, it's the right thing to do. I don't mean to be preachy or anything that sounds judgmental what it's an economic right thing to do as well because cancer care is really expensive and if we don't intervene early and intervene appropriately everyone's going to be paying for it mm-hmm. and so Jose you know it seems to me that the other thing that all of these programs do is really develop that trust and that partnership and and how do you think that that affects people in terms of, you know, actually seeking care. Because as, it, as you say, Andrea, you know, it's about actually going to the doctor, actually getting the care. And so often fear is, is a paralyzing factor. Um, do you find that your programs are actually getting people to get to get to the doctor? And You're exactly right. And that's that, um, that feeling that I know someone that works there, that I know someone from there, that... Um, each one teach one type um, um, type philosophy. I think that's what works best um, in in these certain situations because the the fear sometimes is tangible. It's paralyzing to some folks, and it's nice that oh, I seen Jose. I saw uh, Dr. Silver at my church, at my school, at my community center. Uh, they come down. They were at a festival. This guy gave me a pamphlet at you know at the Hill Day here in New Haven. And making those connections and making those bridges, I think, is an important key. Jose de Jesus is a community health educator, and Dr. Andrea Silber is a clinician and associate clinical professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.